is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 154 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tom Fowler, and we are going to be talking all about how to write thrillers and mystery novels. But first to last week's question, which was, where was the last holiday you took or last fun place that you went? So Erin McKnight said, I haven't taken an actual holiday since I was 12. I did, however, get to go to Vegas to belly dance. That's amazing. When I was in college, but that was over a decade ago, lol. Wow. I really hope that you do get to take a vacation or actual, not a vacation, obviously vacation can be taken at home, but a holiday. Uh, uh, yeah, I hope that you get to do that soon. Ian Worrell said the last holiday was probably almost 10 years ago when my dad and I went on a ski trip to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. The mountains we went to were Sunday River, uh, Atitash Bear Park, Wildcat Cannon and Shawnee Peak. I hope I said those right. That sounds amazing. Uh, April Jones said my last vacation was I think eight years ago my husband and I went to Las Vegas. So lots of Vegas things going on here. Uh, Edwin Downward said what's a vacation? I did go up to uh, Kelowna. Oh, I probably absolutely butchered that, uh, to, in July to vend at a fan, fan experience, which also meant a chance to see my mum, who's 102. Wow, your mum's amazing. Uh, and two of my brothers with their spouses. That's incredible. Uh, Eden Collier said, the last fun place I've been was to my local Comic Con with my other half earlier in August. I was in my steampunk finery and they were cosplaying Ripley from Alien. That is amazing. And finally, Sparky Hazard said, the last fun place I went to was the Oregon coast for a girl's trip with my sister-in-laws. I'm a nervous introvert hermit type and was a little apprehensive at first. The sister I'm close to had had to practically drag me kicking and screaming out of my shell, but I ended up having an amazing time. Yay, that is fantastic. I am so pleased for you that you had a lovely time. And uh, I loved that hearing uh, about all of your trips uh, and yeah that was that was cool okay this week's question is what's the best thriller you've ever read and okay I know some of you aren't going to be able to answer this because you don't read thrillers but that's okay maybe tell me tell me a book that you found thrilling okay the book recommendation of the week this week is my very own the anatomy of a bestseller so here are three reasons you might want to read this book. If you want to understand what makes your favorite books so good, this book will show you how to figure it out. If you'd love to learn the tools that the best-selling authors in your genre are using so that you can use them too, only better, this book is for you. And if you want to understand how to know your market, how to understand how to break down the tropes, the tone, the craft, how to understand what marketing needs to be used in order for you to succeed, then this book is for you. I uh, I did the dreaded thing and I looked on Amazon uh, at the reviews and there is an anonymous review that says, my number one favorite book on learning the craft. I have a problem. I am addicted to craft books. If there is a book that remotely mentions the craft of writing, then I want to own it. I believed that studying all the craft books would help teach me how to write. Until now. I had an epiphany whilst reading this book, getting down and dirty in the words of my favourite writers and teaching myself through deconstruction of their writing, I would learn practical tips for improving my writing. 
I can learn how my favourite writers pull off the techniques that keep me reading with examples that I have torn apart myself and are then able to apply to my own writing. And that is the power of this book. It shows you how to teach yourself the craft. Shaffer, Shaffer, Sasha Black shows you how to teach yourself the macro, pacing plot, mid, character and sentence level craft through deconstruction. There is even a section on how to deconstruct your market. And best of all, Sasha teaches you how to do this in her own hilarious, oh thank you darling, swear-fueled style. Most craft books are dry and dull and even worse, not practical enough. This book is the opposite. I was laughing out loud throughout and it has taught me that every time I read a novel, now I can teach myself something new about writing which I can apply to my own words. I can't think of a better reason to recommend this book. And thank you to the anonymous customer who wrote that because that made my day. Uh, and so don't take it from me, <laughs> take it from this reader uh, who, who has read the book and that is their review. So if you would like to get your copy of The Anatomy of a Bestseller, then you can on any store, uh, 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 in any place and the audio is very nearly done next week I should be finishing it um should be finishing it mm, it might be the week after all of my work should be done and then it should be going through the final stages of proofing and then I just have the pickups which is usually a couple of hours work and then it will go to the masterer so what my plan is is to have it done by mm, around mid-September um, and then I'm going to launch it on my direct website first because that is the quickest way to get it to you and then um, it will all get uploaded to ACX and Findaway and then it should be live on the other stores. I'm hoping by the end of September uh, but of course I will update you uh, as and when I get to that. So in personal update I am off to York this weekend I'm going to be teaching at Jericho Writers. I think I'm doing four sessions. I don't think I know. <laughs> I know that I'm doing four sessions uh, because I've just spent the last week doing all the presentations and I'm very excited. It's the first time I've taught in person in a really long time. Uh, so I'm actually a little bit nervous. It's been so long since I've stood on a stage in front of people that, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit nervous. However, I've decided to lean into my competition. And so I'm running a competition in each one of the sessions, which is going to be a little bit of fun. Uh, uh, so yeah, there'll be like prize winners at the end of the session. So hopefully uh, that will engage everybody or <laughs> it'll turn everybody off because everybody hates competition. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I'm excited to be teaching in person and uh, getting to be around people. I'm going to get to meet some friends on the Friday night, which is lovely. Um, and then I come back and then next week is going to be chaos. It's the first day of school. Uh, my kiddo goes back. He is going into year four. Uh, I don't know what that is in other other countries, but year four is basically they start the school year at eight and then they uh, finish the school year when they're nine. Um, and then uh, so next week, work wise, I will be working on the audiobook. I am going to be working on a query letter and a synopsis uh, for The Scent of Death. I have decided to query it. I don't don't know um, whether enough whether or not I'll be lucky enough to uh, have it accepted you know it's <laughs> it's very hard to get traditionally published uh, however I have decided to query it which I think is I think that's news I don't think I've said that anywhere um, but yes I am going to query it it's not finished um, I'm doing the query letter and uh, synopsis first to help me with the editing um, uh, although the editing is on pause I won't be doing that until I finish writing the next book so the next so next week I am doing the audiobook I'm doing a query letter and a synopsis package and I'm finishing skeleton drafting uh, the next fiction book all while inputting 
for my next non-fiction, which I will be writing immediately after finishing uh, the uh, fiction book that I'm writing next week. That fiction book is the one that's going to be under my pen name, uh, so I won't be talking too much about that. Uh, however, I've got three non-fiction books that I want to write. I am so buzzed for non-fiction at the moment. Um, I just fucking loved writing The Anatomy of a Bestseller and like, oh yeah, I've, I've got three ideas and so I've got to, got to try and narrow down which one I'm going to be working on next. Okay, Rebel of the Week this week is Holly Line. Holly says, the maps do lie, do literally lie. Ah, <laughs> so this was me. Okay, so I don't remember if I said this on the podcast, but uh, when, I think I did say this, I don't know, I'm like, practically senile. When I uh, went on the plane to Africa, I couldn't believe that eight of our 10 hour flight was just flying over Africa. And of course, I know that the maps, the Mercator, or however you pronounce it, map is wrong. Uh, it is a westernized map. And so the countries are disproportionately shaped. Uh, but I don't think that you get any real like gravity, any real uh, concept of what like just quite how distorted they are until you actually fly down Africa, which is fucking huge, by the way. Um, and so, yeah, when I was on the plane, I uh, just couldn't believe I had my mind blown. And I was talking about that in my one of my newsletters. Anyway, back to Holly. Holly says, the maps literally do lie. If you're only used to seeing the Mercator, I'm probably butchering that, projections, it can be a heck of a shock to realise how vast the Southern Hemisphere is. I'm partial to the Peters projection. In fact, you can have this as a rebel story. Okay, so let's go. When I was a teenager, I was uh, whatever the predecessor to woke was. <laughs> I don't even know what woke means. I hear kids saying it all the time and I'm like, yeah, okay, honey. Uh, I was actually a bit, uh, a bit of a superior brat about it, to be honest. I subscribed to the New Internationalist, uh, had, still have a quote from the Dalai Lama, on my wall about human rights, was a member of Amnesty, uh, boycotted Nestle. I still do that, 24 years and counting. Wow. And all that shiz. Anyway, I got myself a big old print of Peter's projection. Wow, that is like a um, tongue twister. And took it off to uni with me. I pinned it up on my wall for all to visit, for all who visited my room to see. One day, sure enough, a friend looked at it, squinted. <laughs> and asked why does it look like someone grabbed the bottom of your map and pulled it so hard it stretched I took great delight in telling him how distorted the Mercator projection was and how the Peters projection shows the continents in their true relative size to one another it is of course just as flawed as any other projection because you can't accurately flatten a sphere Anyway, this interaction garnered me a bit of a reputation as a rebel because I stood up to the, uh, against the Eurocentric lie that is the Mercator projection map. Uh, uh, so yeah, that is amazing. I love that because it was like really relevant to what I was going through. And also I love that you like taught everybody like a thing or two about maps. So that is fantastic. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. We are literally always in need of stories. Uh, and they can be anything, big, small, something in between. They can be um, a spouse, a parent, a, a nan. Uh, it could be anybody's rebellion. Uh, you can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, a gigantic thank you to Kimberly G who upped her pledge and Vicky Turbine for joining, joining me, <laughs> joining me, what the fuck, uh, 
for joining me on Patreon. Uh, a huge thank you. We ran the Gallant Rebel Readers Masterclass last night and oh my goodness me, it was amazing. A huge thank you to Jeff Elkins, who um, the Dialogue Doctor who came along um, as a special uh, guest to discuss Gallant because Gallant does not have a large amount of dialogue in it because the protagonist is mute um, and it was fascinating to hear his insights and uh, yeah and look at uh, how Gallant created such pace uh, and, and hooky tension despite the fact that there wasn't a lot of dialogue in in the uh, book and yes so we deconstructed we got loads of tools out of it and uh, it was fantastic so thank you to all of the patrons and to jeff for attending last night if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as a stack of bonus content and we have got a uh, extra session coming up this quarter because we're celebrating having a uh, reaching and surpassing 100 patrons we've got movie nights going on we've got all kinds of things happening uh then you can from as little as two dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black okay this week's episode is sponsored by the ever amazing pro writing aid pro writing aid is an integral part of my process and i know it's a part of a lot of your processes as part of the rebel listener crew you can get 20 percent off pro writing aid and i will make sure that the link to that page is in the show notes but rather than me tell you about how fucking awesome pro writing aid is i'm gonna let the ever amazing sassy cassie writing coach extraordinaire tell you all about it and don't forget sassy uh, sassy cassie now has a book design uh, uh, company and so i will also include a link to that in the show notes as well i'm one of those lifetime license pro writing aid individuals i love it so much it's a part of my integrated editing for all of my manuscripts for all of the books i have published and am working on now the reason why i love it so much is i love scrivener and i love the desktop plug-in with regards to scrivener the reports are fantastic it allows me to know where to focus on and one of the key features that i really enjoy is setting it up with my genre in mind and comparing me to another author who writes in my genre. You don't get those kind of insights with a lot of editing tools. And this allows me to see how I'm faring against the market. I couldn't replace that. That is indispensable and I love it. So if anyone ever asks me what I use in terms of editing, in terms of my process, it's pro writing aid. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I'm super excited because I've got a good friend and someone I've known for ages on the show, Tom Fowler. Tom is a USA Today best-selling mystery and thriller writer. He was born and raised in Baltimore and now lives in the DC suburbs of Maryland with his family. He writes the C.T. Ferguson mysteries and the John Tyler thrillers, both set in his home city. Tom's stories feature flawed heroes, action and plenty of snark. Hello and welcome. Thanks for having me. I have listened since episode one, so it is awesome to be on here. Oh, I love that. That's making me smile. <laughs> um, okay, well, like, let's talk about, how, you know, your journey and how you've gotten to where you are, because I've known that you've been writing for a really long time. And now you have like a metric fuckload of books, which <laughs> is ridiculously impressive because you still you. have a full time job I and do. you're a father and mm -hmm. a husband. So like, how the fucking hell 
<laughs> you do everything. Uh, yeah. Tell me about your journey and how you sort of got to where you are today. Well, like a lot of people, I started writing as a kid and I was probably, you know, seven or eight or something like that. And, you know, my grandparents, I was at their house a lot. They would watch, you know, Columbo and the Rockford Files and shows like that. And so that got me interested in writing uh, mysteries. So I wrote a murder mystery uh, is what I called it, in which no shit, no one died. <laughs> so not a murder, right? <laughs> And I named the killer in like the first paragraph of this little two page story. So also not a mystery. <laughs> no uh, no one died and everyone actually recovered very nicely in the hospital. It, it was, it was great. Um, I have gotten a little bit better at the risk of sounding immodest <laughs> over the years. People do die in my yeah. stories now. And I'd like to think I, you know, make people work to figure out the answers. That's um, hilarious. Yeah, but that, I guess that gave me the writing bug. And it's something that I kind of did on and off through various genres over the years. A while ago, I settled on mysteries and thrillers. And I probably first started writing what would eventually become the C.T. Ferguson mysteries. Gosh, probably... 11 or 12 years ago by now, a lot of short stories to really, it's a first person. So I really had to find his voice. Uh, and I went through probably two dozen mostly dreadful short stories to get there. Um, but I'm now 12 books into that. Uh, number 13 will actually come out later this year. Uh, and I have four books in the John Tyler thriller series. Number five is on the docket for some March of 23, but I'll probably come out, come in early on that, but sometime early next year. And I've Incredible. been in indie the whole time. I, I, it's just, okay, so let's just just tell me your strengths because I, I believe that we share one excellent strength, don't we? In the same yes. position. Yes, <laughs> number one competition. Yes, everyone drink. <laughs> so, so here's a fact for you. You are, aside from my father, the only number one competition I know. So wow. that makes you very special. Yeah, yeah, but you are the only other person I know with it in yeah. number one. I I, I am like su super competitive at everything. Like it's hard for me to like let my daughter win at stuff. Because it's like <laughs> I want to like for playing mini golf. I want to like kick her ball away from the hole. I, mean, I don't obviously. I'm not a dick, but you know it's like really hard for me to like tone down the yeah. the competitive fire and the desire to win. You know. I love it. I literally love it. Um, uh, <laughs> I have to try not to ask you all the questions about competition, but I think but I'm probably gonna end up slipping some more out. Um. Okay, so like, let's talk about the basics because this is an episode about thrillers. Mm -hmm. So, like, what is a thriller? What makes a thriller a thriller? And like, what because it's not just thriller; there are various different types. So, can you just sort of tell everyone a little bit about the the genre and sort of the main differences and and all that good stuff? Right. Well, a thriller obviously has to be thrilling. Right? <laughs> you know, thanks for coming to my TED talk. Right. Um, <laughs> But there are a lot of ways to do that. And one of the big ways is the stakes have to be high, um, not just for the protagonist, but for everybody, for the readers, too. Um, you know, the, the old man who owns the deli on the corner probably thinks it's terrible that somebody stole two ham sandwiches. But those aren't high enough stakes. You can't have a thriller out there. You know, MI5 isn't coming out to investigate something like that. So it's got to be, you know, got a murder, kidnapping. Um, I mean, different genres get into different things that they're focused on, but it's got to be something that number one motivates the protagonist to go on the hero or heroine's journey. 
and also gets the reader interested. You know, Bond has to stop Blofeld because he has the magic space rockets or whatever it is. Um, and like I said, different things, different thriller types have different um, things to them. Psychological thrillers often focus on not just what happened, but why. And usually there's some kind of, um, maybe not mental illness, but there could be, but usually like a trauma in the protagonist's past and things like that that obviously become relevant to what's happening today. And there can be a lot of overlap between thrillers and other genres. You can have like uh, a science fiction thriller, horror overlaps with a lot, mystery, certainly. I mean, mystery and thriller get bundled together pretty much everywhere. But you got to have high stakes. You have to have conflict uh, with your hero and some antagonist could be more than one person. Um, usually the hero has to be outclassed. The power imbalance has to favor the villain because you want the hero to overcome those odds. Um, you can have things like a, a time crunch, like some kind of a ticking clock, uh, a literal ticking clock. Maybe there's like a ransom demand. Oh, I'll kill her if I don't get $10 million by Friday or whatever. And uh, sometimes cliffhangers, location changes, fast pacing, um, quick chapters, quick scenes, all of those things can go into the various types of thrillers. And we can talk more about the, the different subgenres and what would make them up specifically, but that's kind of a general ballpark of what goes into a thriller. So this is a naive question because I used to read sort of thrillery crimes as a teenager, but I haven't read a lot uh, in quite a while. So, but do thrillers always have to have an element of mystery as well? I don't know that they have to, but they usually seem to. Okay. Um, mystery generally focuses on solving a crime, and thrillers generally focus on righting a wrong, either in the present day or in the past. And that can be solving a crime. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but it often does take that form. Usually something bad has happened. You know, Jack Reacher steps off the bus and gets himself tied up in a bunch of bad shit and probably <laughs> has to solve a mystery along the way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love this. Especially the fact that you said that the psychological thrillers focus on the why as well, because I think I, I, think I knew that innately or like subconsciously, but I didn't know it consciously. Because when you said it, I was like, oh yeah, of course. Like that makes so much sense. Um, I love this. I'm already learning loads of stuff. Okay. <laughs> um, what do you think are the cornerstones of a really good thriller? Like what makes one thriller be a bestseller over thrillers that are just, you know, run of the mill? Yeah. You have to have high stakes in whatever your thriller subgenre is. Um, you have to have pacing that is appropriate, usually fast, um, but it always has to be, your story has to constantly move forward. Nobody can stop and pick the flowers. You know, you got to keep building up tension. You have to have tension uh, and you have to keep building it up. Uh, one of the things I like to do in my thrillers, and this is a common, a common tactic, uh, especially if the book is written in third person, you know, you, you end the chapter where the hero has fully landed in the soup, right? The, the floor is filling up with water. The ceiling is caving in. There's six guys with guns, you know, surrounding him. And then you end the chapter and cut to somebody else. <laughs> so immediately as a reader, you're like, what happened? And you, you can't cut to somebody, you know, skipping down the street and singing a song. It's got to be something else that's appropriate to the story. But you want to delay that. You want to come back to it. But you you got to tell something else first. And 
build that suspense within the story. Oh, I love and, that. You know, and the hero has to be, you know, usually outclassed by by the opposition and eventually overcomes those odds as well as whatever whatever else he or she is facing in the story. What does that look like? Is that just skill? Is it like financial backing? Like when you say outmatched, what like mm. what does that imbalance look like? I mean, it, it can be. Uh, you you can have a single character up against you know a, a militia or a group okay. of people or something like that or you know one reporter is taking on you know, the corrupt city government and the police department ah, and you know, there's a okay. huge power imbalance in the favor of the villains in that case okay yeah that makes a lot of sense so let's talk about voice then because so we had um ryan cahill on the show talking about epic fantasy recently and one of the questions i really enjoy asking for the different genres is about voice because i think that a lot of genres have obviously each author has their own individual unique elements to their voice but Mm -hmm. genres as a whole have a tone or a voice or an atmosphere so talk to me about that like what kind of craft things do you think are important to a good thriller voice well some of it is going to depend on the subgenre that you're in and the protagonist that you're that you're writing about like mysteries um tend to be first person more than third and usually the narrator is the the pi or the cop or the fbi agent or whoever it is is usually snarky or sarcastic or you know, just kind of a jerk. And that's part of what makes them interesting is they have to overcome that internal flaw as well. Uh, but in something like, um, in the case of like a military thriller, where you have someone like uh, like Jack Reacher as your protagonist, uh, he's a guy with a lot of experience, a lot of intelligence. So he's going to bring that to the table in his narration, whether it's first or third person, if we're in his head, you know, he's going to be running the odds of a situation. Oh, here's these two guys. What am I going to do? And in the case of something like a psychological thriller, it's very focused on the psyche of the protagonist and usually some trauma they've experienced. So that has to be like in their voice somehow that they've lived through this event in the past that uh, that is defining them still to this day that they're trying to overcome. And usually that's framed in the events of the story that are taking place today. Um, Sharp objects, I think, is a good example of that, where the protagonist has to try to solve something in the present day that relates very strongly to her town and where she grew up and things that happened to her as a child. That's is that Gillian Flynn? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Just just in case people wanted uh, mm-hmm. to to read that one. So okay. So in the psychological thrillers, there's a lot more like reflect internal reflection in like the narrative. Um, okay. Okay. So are thrillers like clean? Do they have loads of description? Like how do you create enough visualization for a reader without it being epic fantasy levels of description? (laughs) Right. Um, I like to do just enough to set the scene. Okay. Um, you know, if the character's standing under a tree, you can say it's a tree. You can say it's an oak tree or a maple tree, and maybe it's tall and maybe it's wide, but you don't need to go into three paragraphs about it. The character's under a tree. It's this type of tree. It's 20 feet tall. There's a lot of shade on the ground. Done. Get on with the, get on with what's happening. He's fighting a guy under the tree or whatever it is. Um, do I just enough to set the scene for the reader. So they have it clear in their head, what's happening and where it's happening, but don't, you know, don't go down that epic fantasy three pages about 
the trees and the skirts and all of this that some writers do. And I, I read fantasy and I like it, but that is part of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned earlier, like um, pace, tension um, and conflict. So um, conflict obviously is important to any book, any genre, mm-hmm. but it's really important to thrillers. So can you talk about some of the tactics and some of the ways that you do that? Like, how do you create pace? How do you create tension and conflict? Like, how do you keep that bubbling through the story? And is it is everything, every single page filled with it? Is it in certain places? Like, yeah, talk, talk about that. Yeah, so pace, uh, one of the common things you'll see is uh, shorter chapters. Uh, if you look, look at like a James Patterson book, he has the 120, 130 chapters in his books. Um, wow. So how long are they? You know, some of them might be a page. Some of them might be four. Um, oh, wow. But they're all okay. pretty short. Yeah. Um, Mark Dawson's John Milton books. He often has 80, 90, 100 chapters. Um, sometimes, especially if there's an action scene, you want to have shorter sentences because you want you know, their characters are fighting or there's, you know, gunplay or whatever going on. You don't want to bog yourself down with a lot of long sentences there. You want to just hit what's happening and move on. Um, my own thrillers uh, tend to be, you know, 40, 45 chapters. Maybe I need to take my own advice a little bit about shortening them. I don't know. <laughs> um, John Gilstrap, who's another uh, thriller writer, he, he has said he only puts two scenes at most per chapter. Uh, anything else goes into the next one because he thinks that's too long. Uh, so, you know, things like that can can make the story feel like it's moving faster, and hopefully it is, but that says to the reader that this is something that's moving quickly. Um, in terms of tension, uh, the trick I mentioned earlier about changing points of view, like at the end of the chapter, um, you, you put the hero in the soup and then you move on to somebody else. Uh, I've done that a lot in my thrillers because they're third person. My mysteries are first person, so if at the end of the chapter the hero's in a bad spot, he's still there at the beginning of the next chapter because it's first person. Uh, so yes, I can still create tension, but it's got to be in his struggle to get out of the situation more than now we move to this other person and what they're doing before we come back. Yeah. Um, I mean, first person and third person each have their, their pros and their cons. I enjoy both of them for different reasons, but they both do have some limitations. And one of the limitations of first person is you can't really, I guess you can. There are some books where you have a first-person narration, and every now and then there are third-person chapters. As a reader, I don't personally like that, um, but some authors do that. But in most first-person stories, it's just that point of view the whole time, so you can't really step out of that character's head. Do you find one easier than the other? I find third-person easier um, because you can uh, step out into somebody else's point of view, and easily create tension by leaving somebody in the bad spot. Now the challenge is you've got to come up with multiple character voices Mm. because you have multiple narrators as opposed to first person where it's one character the whole time. That's why it took me so many short stories to find uh, my detective CT Ferguson's voice because he's the first person narrator. If his voice doesn't work, nothing works. Whereas in a, so how do you do that? How do you differentiate? What So obviously you did short stories. What are some of the other tactics that you use? To differentiate voice? Mm. Just you have to come up with attributes and things like that for your different characters. Um, in my thriller series, uh, the main character is a retired soldier named John Tyler. So he is the, it's all third person, but he is the viewpoint character most of the time. The secondary viewpoint character is his daughter, Lexi, who is... Uh, 
as the series starts finishing high school, she goes into college uh, in the next couple of books. You know, she's smart. She's much younger than he is, obviously. Um, she's his daughter in a lot of respects, but her outlook on the world is much different than his um, and changes a little bit throughout some of the events because she gets her own storyline. And that's something else you can do with third person is you can give these minor characters storylines that aren't filtered through the first person narrator's point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, she has her own problems to overcome, especially in the third and fourth books where she gets really involved in a lot of the things that are happening. And that's something that third person is great for, but you do have to work on those secondary characters so they can stand on their own as narrators and as characters people are going to care about if something happens to them. Do you find then that first person is used more for mystery and third person is used more for the thrillers? It is. Um, Mm. I, I think one of the big reasons for that is people like to solve the mystery along with the main character. Uh, so as, okay. as a reader, you're only seeing or hearing or whatever what the protagonist sees. So if he or she misses something or had, doesn't put the clues together, you as the reader can take what you've learned and maybe assemble things and figure it out before the detective or the MI5 agent or whoever does. I just want to ask all of the questions because obviously <laughs> you put red herrings in and you put, and you put subtle clues in that a canny reader would pick up, but perhaps a less so. So how do you do that? How do you, yeah, what are kind of the tactics or tricks you do to like drop those in? I, I love stuff like that because I love like trying to figure out like how how the the killer has done it or whatever. Yeah, I, I make notes about them now. For my first few mysteries, I, I was a total pantser. Uh, and I wrote myself into a corner in book three. Um, so I started outlining after that. So now I make notes about things like that. But before it would just be like, oh, I want to do this. And even though I wasn't outlining per se, I would like jot a note at the bottom of the document to say, you know, something I wanted to do coming up or like a, a clue, you know, real or false that I wanted to put in there. Um, but I, I did write myself into a corner one time and uh, I took the advice that's commonly attributed to uh, Raymond Chandler. And that is if you're ever unsure of what to do, have a man walk in with a gun. <laughs> it works it works very well in mystery and thriller yeah, um, perhaps really less does. so in other genres um you know yeah. not many guns and regency romance i don't think but you know <laughs> the key though is you have to challenge your protagonist to get out of a bad situation yeah. and when i literally i literally had a man walk in with a gun um but i realized i couldn't i couldn't do that like at the 75 percent mark of every book i can't have some dude walk in with a gun it's going to become self-parody at some point yeah. Oh, well, let me read ahead. Where's the guy with the gun? We haven't seen that yet. You know, (laughs) so that's when I started outlining and making a note of of things like red herrings or less obvious clues that maybe the protagonist doesn't pick up, pick up on it first, that he'll figure out later in the story. So that's that's something that you do in advance or do you make the notes as you're writing and go back and put it in? Sometimes both. Uh, okay. I do have, I do make, I do compose some in advance, but you know, things change as you write a story. You know, I, I think an outline is kind of a roadmap. You know, it's like, it's like your GPS. Uh, it tells you how to, tells you the, the route you've put in there. But if you want to make a stop and get some lunch or whatever, you, well, you, you change the route and then you get back on the road. So yeah. if I need to add a scene or add a detail, I can do that. And then if I have to go back earlier and, and fill something else in, I can do that too. It's pretty easy. 
So I'm going to ask about sort of like audience building and stuff in a second, but Mm -hmm. I am curious, how the fuck have you done everything so quickly? Like, (laughs) let's actually talk about that because like, like you are a busy human. (laughs) How the fuck do you work so fast? You know, when, um, when, when COVID hit, it really just fucked up my entire writing schedule that I had built up. Um, because I used to, I used to have time. I, I did a mix of my day job being in the office and at home. And I would meet my daughter's bus uh, in the afternoon when she was in school. She's since graduated. Um, but I had time between that and when my wife got home from work that I would do my writing time. And I had, you know, an hour, two hours, something like that. So it was very easy to say, okay, this is my writing time. I'm going to get my words in. Well, once COVID hit, we were all home all the time. And that's still pretty much the case. So now that dedicated one or two hours is totally gone. I have not seen that since, you know, for two and a half years or something like that. So it's really just, it, for me, it's finding time, um, sometimes putting it on the calendar and say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to get up at eight and I'm going to write from eight to eight 30 uh, and I'll start work at eight 30 or, and I'll, I'll end work at four 30. And then from four 30 to five, I'll do something else. And at lunchtime I'll sign off, I'll lock my screen for 15 minutes and, and write something else, you know, stolen moments, I guess. Um, but I think a popular misconception of, of that a lot of, especially newer writers have is they say, Oh, I want to write for an hour. And they think it has to be like a continuous block of time. And I don't have a continuous hour most of the time. And and I'm sure a lot of people don't, especially if you have a full-time job, a family that you don't want to ignore, you know, other things going on in your life, you know? So if you have 15 minutes, use your 15 minutes. And if you have four 15 minute blocks, there's an hour, you know? Now I think outlining does help here. I know some people are, you know, discovery writers all the way through. And if that works for you, great. Don't change just because I said so on a podcast one time, but I outlining helps because I know what, I, I know what the scene is that I'm going to write. Oh, it's, this is what's going to happen. Okay. Now there's still a lot of pantsing going on because I wrote a three sentence capsule of what's going to happen. And I turned that into a thousand words. So yeah, there's a lot of discovery writing there because I have to take that little summary and make it something much longer, but I know what I'm going to write. Uh, and even if you are a discovery writer, just at the end of your document for the day, make it, you know, this is what I think is going to happen next. Boom, boom, boom. And then the next day when you sit down, you can say, oh, this is what I thought was going to happen. Okay, let me write this. Sometimes I will stop in the middle of a scene um, because it forces me to come back into it and like finish it and think my way through it the next time. But yeah, I, and I realize, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, just get up earlier. Well, not everybody can get up earlier or Me. stay up later. Right. Oh, right. I can do that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, not just being a morning person or a night owl, you know, you, you might have to get on the bus for two hours for your job or whatever and getting up earlier, you know, and you have kids to get on to get to school and all of this. So get up an hour earlier just isn't possible for people. Mm-hmm. But find those pockets of time, those 10 and 15 minute bursts. If you're in line at the grocery store for 15 minutes, whip out your phone, use Google Docs, use the notes, you know, the Apple Notes app just to, you know, jot a few things down. Have you got discipline or consistency? Um, no, actually, I don't think I do. <laughs> okay, that's um, interesting. I because I'm like, I do you have focus? No. 
Huh. I'd have to look at what the other four are. I don't I don't know them offhand. I I, I did the, the the top five. And oh, then okay. I, I haven't gone back. I just signed up to do the whole thing. Um, <gasps> so that's coming up. Yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> I'm going to go down that rabbit hole now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please tell me when you get your full hot pen. I'm curious. Yeah. Um, the, the reason I say it is because I bloody love that you are like so precision laser focused on um, like switching the brain into writing mode because mm-hmm. like I definitely feel almost like I have lost that skill when I was in the day job. I would write on my phone, walking between meetings. People were late to meetings, so I'd sit there and write two sentences mm-hmm. or whatever. Like I used to use those pockets of like ten minutes and three minutes and whatever that I that I had. And I definitely feel lazier now. I don't know if it's lazy. I think my my plate is fuller in different ways, mm-hmm. but um, I definitely. I'm a bit more, oh, I'll wait until I have a block of three hours. Whereas mm-hmm. like I would never have done that five years ago. Um, and I think that is a bit of a short, sharp reminder to me to stop being such a fucking fanny over it and just get on <laughs> with it. <laughs> like okay, I'm so- whining that I haven't written for seven weeks. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you fucking could have, couldn't you? Because we've all got 15 minutes or five minutes or whatever. So yeah, thank you for that um, slap. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm certainly not some time management guru. You know, far from it. I, you know, I've, there's times I'm, you know, wasting time like everybody else, going down social media rabbit holes, and I have on the Wikipedia page for Batman or whatever. You know, there's so many ways to to waste time, but you know, I, I do try to find those pockets uh, when I can, and you know, I, I do use an outline. I, I'm a pretty fast writer in terms of words per minute or words per hour or whatever. Um, and I tend to, you know, I've been doing this long enough and my editor has beaten me over the head over the years with, with so many different things um, that I think I write much cleaner first drafts now than I used to. Yeah. So I also yeah. lose less time reviewing and self-editing. I mean, I still do that stuff, but it doesn't take me as long anymore because my copy is cleaner from the start. What are some of your outlining like tips or techniques? Like how do you do it? What things have you picked up over the years that have helped you to outline in more in more with more clarity? I don't mean detail is not always the right mm-hmm. word. Clarity is the is the thing that I think helps. It, it's really a combination of of a couple of different things. The best book I've read on outline is Take Off Your Pants by Libby Hawker, which is a great title for a, a book, by the way. That is. Um, and I absolutely recommend it. But the, the core of her system basically is that you have a protagonist uh, who wants something and you have an antagonist who probably wants the same thing uh, and they're going to struggle with it in some way. And the hero is either going to win or lose at the end. Mm-hmm. And that's the core. I start with that. Here's my protagonist. This is what the story is. Here's the antagonist. Here's the struggle. Does the protagonist win? Usually yes, but not always. Or maybe they win in a way they didn't expect. From there, I have some ideas for how I want it to start and how I want it to end. And I kind of build in the rest. I also use, um, I know you had Jessica Brody on a while ago from Save the Cat Writes a Novel. I, I use, the, there's a, you can find blank ones out there. There's a blank Save the Cat Writes a Novel Excel beat sheet. And I tend to go by that and say, okay, now I need to have, now I'm going to do this and this and this. And I kind of just fill it in. And at the end, I have a collection of scenes or a collection of ideas at least. And then I go into plotter and I build a timeline in there, which I export into Scrivener and that has all my chapters and scenes. Ah, oh, 
Ah, I've looked at Plotter a few times and not been able to quite get my head around it. But I think that's possibly because I haven't used it on the computer. I've never tried to use it like on, mm. like in mm-hmm. the app version. Ah, that, I love that. I love that you use the timeline as well. Yeah, that's, that's generally, that's, I think that's the main outline building tool in there. It, like Scrivener, I probably use it to like 15% of its capability. <laughs> Because you know, Scrivener does so many things. Yeah. I, I use it like a word processor yeah. with a corkboard, you know. Yeah. Um, so Plotter probably does way more than I use it for. But yeah. that's the main feature I use it with it. Amazing. Oh, okay. Thank you for letting me uh, tangent oh, on this. Sure. Back to thrillers. Um, <laughs> okay. So let's talk about kind of your model. What is your business model? Because I know that you have kind of looked at changing. I think you you either used to be or still are KU, but you've looked at wide and and all of that kind of stuff. So talk about sort of the model and why you've chosen that and then how you built your audience. I started out in KU, um, mainly because it was easier. Um, And regardless of your opinion of wide or KU, KU is easier. Um, And I did my first nine mysteries uh, through KU. And eventually being exclusive, uh, just started chafing at me. I didn't like it. And the page read payout started to go down. And this was probably the summer of 2020. So obviously in the middle of a global pandemic is the best time to change your business model. So that's exactly what I did. <laughs> I went wide. Um, I got a book bub actually on uh, one of the books in my mystery series, the fourth book. I try to build an easy entry point every three. So number one, number four, number seven, um, an easy way for people to get, I, you know, they're all standalone stories. So the goal is if you pick up any of them, you won't be lost. But I really try to make like one, four, seven, 10, 13 that I'm working on now, easy entries for people who've never heard of me before. And it was on number four. And I got the book by when I was in KU and I emailed oh, them and wow. I said, yeah, I, I got, I got four in 18 months in KU. So all those what people who say f- you can't, is, <laughs> now two of them were international only, two of them were including the US, but I got four in 18 months. That's impressive. And this last one- You win. I, thank you. <laughs> Yay, number one competition. You win, <laughs> And with the last one, I said, hey, I'm thinking about going wide. Um, can I send you the other store links when I have them? They're like, oh yeah, that's great. Just send them to us when you get them. And so I did. I took my entire series wide. Uh, and that really gave me a huge visibility blast on all the other platforms. Because when you move from KU to wide, it's likely that no one knows who you are on Apple Books or Google Play or whatever. You are almost certainly an unknown. And obscurity is the enemy. And that's what you're trying to overcome. And something like a BookBub really helps with that. So if you are transitioning from KU to wide, even if you can't get a BookBub, try to build uh, you know, a promo with all the other newsletters out there, which support wide links. Not all of them do. Some of them only go to Amazon. Um, Book Doggy, I know, does all of them. Um, God, there's a few other ones. Uh, Free Booksy and Bargain Booksy will do them all. There are a few other ones out there. David Gochran has a link to a a lot of promo sites on his website. Um, But just do that and just try to get a big visibility blast out there on all those other sites because you are an unknown to those people if they don't read on the Kindle. And so I went wide in the summer of 2020. I put out my first thriller, uh, The Mechanic, in the fall of 2020, October, I think. That is probably my best-selling book to date. That series, even though it's only four books with number five coming, outsells my mystery series. Uh, yeah, I, I think thrillers are probably more popular than mysteries, and I think that has something to do with it. 
but I also think I wrote them to market better. Um, ah. and we can talk about that in, in a couple of minutes. Um, but in terms of audience building, uh, I have a reader magnet for each series. So it's a, a kind of like a, a prequel for the thriller series and a prequel for the, for the mystery series. And are they full books? Are they novella? Like they are, they are novellas. They're about 22, 24,000 words. So I get maybe about a third of the length of a, of a full length novel in those series. And I do, I will do occasional book funnel promos and newsletter swaps and things like that. Um, and I say occasional because I really think, you know, when you're first building an audience, you probably want to cast a pretty wide net. Once you have an audience, you really want to narrow your focus. You know, if I write military thrillers and you write um, psychological thrillers, we may not be the best pair to do like a newsletter swap because yeah, some people are going to read both, but they're also quite different. Um, so I really try to laser focus on number one is, is this KU or wide? And number two, does this really fit my genre? Cause mystery is pretty big, you know, cozy mystery is a big thing. My stories are very much not cozies. Uh, you know, they're swearing in them and things like that. And there's <laughs> funny, funny little aside, the, the most, um, upvoted, I guess, review of my first mystery book is this pearl clutching one star write up where someone complains about, oh, the main character uses a lot of foul language and goes to bed with a woman he just met. And <laughs> oh my so, God. You know, right. So oh. even if you get a one star review from, from a reader like that, and clearly this person was not my target audience. Right. Uh, but it certainly hasn't hurt the sales were, well, that book has been free for a year and a half, the downloads of that book. Um, it's so, so I love those one star reviews. So I had, yeah. um, I think I had a three or four star the other day that basically was like this, this book was great except for the swearing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have, like, I have a few oh. readers on my arc team who, um, who don't like, I mean, they still like the books. They're not fans of, of the salty language. And, um, you know, my, my mysteries are hard R for language. Um, none of my books do one-page sex. That's all behind closed doors. And the violence is, you know, it's nothing you wouldn't see on your normal network TV or BBC, BBC show. You know, people, there's fights, people get shot. But I don't do bullet porn or anything like that. But there is a lot of cursing in the mystery books. Um, I made the decision with the thrillers to go PG-13. Uh, it's really fucking tough, by the way, <laughs> to not. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> you know, I, I dropped my first F-bomb when I was eight years old. Yeah. Um, and I have not stopped since, I got to say. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's a lot of self-censoring when I uh, when I write the thrillers. Even the mysteries, um, you know, when I finish one, I'll go through and I look for words like, you know, fuck and blaspheme, blasphemies and stuff like that. And if it's gratuitous, I do take it out. Yeah, um, yeah. Because that's it, how it, I had to write the YA. I had to put it all in there and then strip it out right. afterwards. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I do prefer. I, I think that's the way people talk. Some people, at least, and especially if you're writing crime books, when you're dealing with a lot of criminals, and even your your protagonist may not be the most virtuous person in the world, right? Um, they're probably going to have some colorful metaphors in their language, um, but authors need to be aware that the more salty language you include, the more you limit your audience also, because there are people who don't want to read books like that. Yeah. And that's a trade-off that you have to be okay with. And I am okay with it because I want to put fuck in my books. Yeah. At least yeah, my exactly. mysteries at least. Yeah, exactly. And that's the point of genre. You know, I'm sure right. there are people 
In fact, I know there are people that would prefer my craft books not to have swear words in, but too fucking bad. <laughs> That's part of the charm bad. of them, you know? Well, it, it sounds I, like you, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Literally, the number of times people are like, oh my God, I read your books in your voice because that's exactly how you speak. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's uh -huh. literally why I fucking write them like that. <laughs> right. But like, that's my favorite compliment when people say like, oh, I can hear your voice. I'm like, yes, did my job. <laughs> Um, okay, um, so you mentioned writing to market. So like, mm -hmm. what did that look like? How did you research? Um, what things did you look for? Uh, what, you know, how did you make sure that it landed, you know, to market? Talk about all of that. Yeah, when I wrote the mystery series, I, there were some things I specifically did not want to do. Like I didn't want to have the detective with the photographic memory because I felt that had been overdone. I didn't want to have like the grizzled ex-cop who secretly has a heart of gold. Cause I think that's also been overdone. And there are good characters with both of those attributes, but I wanted to write something else. So I, I came up with a character who has no law enforcement or military background. Uh, he comes from a wealthy family and he got into trouble overseas. And basically his parents make him and wants to be a private, sets himself up as a private investigator and his parents make him solve cases for free. And they pay him when it's complete. He worked for their foundation. So it's a, a little bit of a spin on the PI genre, but I think that twist probably didn't help me very much because he's not a traditional protagonist. Um, and, and I found a, a fair number of readers who like the stories and like him as a character. But when I wrote the thrillers, I was like, okay, I can't just, I can't do this real twisty Tom take on things. I got to go a little more traditional. So I, I you know, I've been reading things like um, the Jack Reacher books for years and a bunch of other kind of military action thrillers, like the Terminalist is another good example there. And I, I wanted to hit a lot of those tropes that readers were expecting. So I have the main character who is, uh, you know, former military, in this case is a retired Green Beret. Um, but my, my core principle when I was making it was and, you know, Jack Reacher as a character is like the gorilla in the room if you're going to write military or action thrillers. And, and I love the Jack Reacher books. I don't want to sound like I don't. Um, but my question was, what if Jack Reacher had a house, a job, and a teenage daughter? And the obvious answer is he wouldn't be Jack Reacher anymore because he's pretty much <laughs> defined by not having those things. Yeah. So, okay, he wouldn't be Jack Reacher, but he might be Harry Bosch. So I went kind of with that. And uh, one of my readers actually completely unprompted by me. I, I didn't make that calculation public said, wow, I love John Tyler. He's like a cross between Reacher and Bosch. And I was like, yes, that's just what I was going for. Yes, thank you. Uh, but I read a lot of, I mean, I read a lot of books in those genres anyway, but I really started to keep track of, um, maybe this is a plug for your new craft book on, you know, how to read like a writer, <laughs> which I'm reading now, by the way. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> but I really started to take note of of the things that the writers did in building their characters and their tropes and their stories. And I wanted to bring that, you know, with my own little spin on things to my, to uh, my thrillers and they've taken off. They've done better than the mysteries have. Um, you know, maybe I should have written more than one this year. <laughs> that was probably a, a miscalculation on my part, but that's, that's part of being indie, right? Works. There are some time. things yeah. I wanted to do in the mystery series, some stories I specifically wanted to tell there in this time frame. Um, so I did that instead. Um, and you know, would I have made more money perhaps this year if I put another thriller out this fall instead of another mystery book? Yeah, probably. Um, but I'll do that next year, whatever. Um, it's part of being into you're experimenting. And so how, 
how have you I know you've mentioned like getting a book bub and stuff but mm-hmm. in terms of your readers and finding readers are there any other things that you've done to kind of really like build the um the audience or like what are your launch methods and have they like changed since being in KU and now being wide they have um I do longer pre-orders now. Um, my upcoming thriller actually, uh, by the you know, it probably will release early. But if I release it on time, it'll be almost a year on pre-order. Oh wow! Um, and you get no benefit on Amazon for that. Uh, Amazon suppresses pre-orders um, because it's not a good customer experience. Because uh, if you click on a book, you can't get it right away. Um, but if you're a fan of the author, who cares? You're going to pre-order the book. Um, but so you get no benefit from that on Amazon, but on stores like Apple, I know Apple and Kobo do a Barnes and Noble might also, they effectively double count those pre-orders. You get the, the benefit of a sale on the day you make the pre-order. And then that goes into whatever their version of rank is the day the book goes live. So if you are wide, longer pre-orders can help you in terms of uh, other audience building things. You know, I do those uh, book funnel promos, so occasional newsletter swaps uh, with people who are really, on genre for me. Yeah. Um, But I also do, you know, I have a sign up in the front and back of my books. I've also done a a couple of exclusive epilogues where, you know, you have to read the book because the link is in the back of the book to get the exclusive epilogue. And, you know, if people were on my list already, they, well, they got it again. Uh, But if someone was not on my list and they wanted to see, it's probably, it's something I stole from romance writers because they tend to use it um, in the end of romance books. But I just did it to have like another couple of scenes, um, at the end to, I mean, the story concluded in the book, but here's like a little extra wrap up. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty short. It was, you know, four or 5,000 words, you know, short story length, but things like that can also get your readers. Cause if they've read your book and enjoyed it, they're more did likely it, to just, did it work? Yeah, it did. Yeah. I got a, I got a few hundred readers that way. That's amazing. Yeah. I yeah. love that. I love that. But Okay. So we've talked a lot about like the positive things. We've talked about positive marketing, building, but we all know, (laughs) especially as indies, that we can all make mistakes in our career. So Mm -hmm. what do you think are either some lessons that you've like, like like lessons or, or, you know, a mistake that you have made? Or what do you think are the, the biggest mistakes that new authors make going into like thriller, mystery genre? Yeah, maybe let's start there. What mistakes do you see other writers making? And then we'll talk about like a lesson that you've learned. Uh, other than just general, like unpolished craft, like they're not just very experienced yet. Uh, I would say maybe not understanding your tropes and what makes, say, a military thriller versus an espionage thriller versus a psychological thriller. And also, an over, you know, thrillers are supposed to be action-oriented for the most part and fast-paced, but you can't just have your foot on the gas the entire time. Um, readers need a little bit of a break, too, right? The whole scene and sequel structure. So you have to take your foot off the gas a little bit here and there and let the readers breathe and the characters breathe a little bit. So I, I think that's another common pitfall is be, oh, I have to write an action book. So it's going to be all action all the time. And yeah, that's fun. Sure. But I don't know if that's the best strategy because, you know, readers do need a little bit of a, a break to catch their breath when reading a story too. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of my mistakes, boy, gosh, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll just go with a couple because boy, I, I could, I could talk to you for the rest of the day about the mistakes I've made doing this. Um 
I think the biggest lessons I've had to learn uh, are once you put out a book, it is a product. It is not your baby anymore. It is a commodity that other people are going to buy and you have to be okay with that. And if they buy it, they may not like it. They might complain about all the cursing and fornication and write you a one-star review. <laughs> Those two things literally <laughs> summarize what I want from a book. Right? <laughs> yes, right? smart and swearing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there are people who probably read that review and say, you know what, that's what I want to read. Fuck it, I'm buying this book. Yeah. Or, well, downloading it because it's free, but whatever, yeah. right? And um, the other big lesson, I think, is start your email list before you think you have to. Yeah. Oh my God. Because yes. uh, I, I, I'm sure you, you've probably had a lot of people. I know you had Tammy LeBrecht on a while ago talking all about email. So everybody talks about email, 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 but it's really important. You know, we wouldn't talk about it so much if it didn't matter. Start it before you think you have to. I, I would, you know, I wish I'd started a couple months before I did, but there we go. There, there's my, my lessons. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Okay. I was your rebel listener of the week. Oh God. Uh, one of the <laughs> early ones, uh, I want to say like 16, 17. Um, I think you had Becca Simon. I think she was the guest. Uh -huh. that episode. I was about to say, that I think it's episode 17. I don't know how okay. I know that, but I, <laughs> I might have to double check, but I'm almost sure that it was 17. Okay. Yeah, so I was your rebel listener of the week then, but I, I have another story. And um, this is back when I was in grade school. Uh, I was probably, I think it was seventh grade. It could have been eighth, but I think seventh. And it would have been Christmas season of seventh grade, so I would have been 12. And my friend and I were on what the school called the AV team. So if a teacher needed um, to get set up a TV and a VCR, yes, we had VCRs back then. Uh, ask your parents what a VCR was if you're listening and don't know. Um, we would go and set them up so they could, you know, play whatever it was they were going to play. So for some reason, the principal thought it would be a great idea if we also moved this massive Christmas tree that was in the auditorium back up to the kindergartner's classroom because it was their Christmas tree that they had decorated. And this thing was, I mean, I'm probably not remembering it very well because it was a long time ago and I was much shorter then than I am now, but it had to be at least 10 feet tall. It was an artificial tree. Uh, it was very wide, um, ridiculously over-decorated because five-year-olds did it. And I mean, it was on a stage in the auditorium and our auditorium had double doors. So getting it out that those doors was easy, but we then had to take it up a flight of stairs, turn, hit a landing, turn 180 degrees, take it through a single door oh and it didn't really fit. And <laughs> it was getting um, undecorated, if you will, as, as we walked. Uh, you know, shit's falling off of it, glass balls are breaking, the garland's coming undone, you know, all the Santa Claus ornaments are dead on the floor. Um, and then we have to get it into their classroom, which is also a single door. And, and we do, but of course it's horrible. It's, it looks like it's, it looks like it's been mangled. And the kindergartners are crying because we killed their tree, right? Like this is something they did and we just killed it. And the entire time, like when they first said, do this, I forget, I don't know who the teacher was, but I was like, this isn't going to work. This, <laughs> this thing is too big. Like every time we were asked to move it, I said, this is too big and it's not going to work. And I was 12 and I knew this. I don't know why the adults didn't seem to know it. So we leave and later we get called to the principal's office. Because <laughs> obviously we ruined this fucking Christmas tree, right? <laughs> and she's like, she's going to give us detention. 
No. Yes, for ruining this Christmas tree. And I was like, look, I pointed out every step of the way to anybody who would listen that this wasn't going to work. You can't take that and fit it through a single door. And she said, well, you have detention. And I said, well, I'm not coming. This is ridiculous. And I would walk home from school. Uh, and there were probably three doors. Um, I mean, they all led to my house eventually. The one I went out normally was the fastest. But that day, I walked out the front door of the school past the main office, which is not the fastest route home. And I walked right by the office and right by her and her secretary, and I left. Oh, my God. I love it. And I got home, uh, and eventually I, I told my mother what happened. And my mother hated the principal of our school, hated her. And uh, she was like, okay, I'll take care of it. And she like closed the door and made a phone call. I don't know what all she said, but I, I could hear a little bit of yelling going on. I imagine it was a, a very one-sided conversation. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I love that your mom had your back as well. She did. She did. Circumstances like that. Usually a mom's going to be like, you did Right, right. Oh my God, I love it. And I love the fact that, like, I don't know if this is the competition, but, like, you were right all along. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it was probably a strength even back then, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God, I love it. Oh, amazing. Okay, well, would you like to tell listeners where they can find out more about you, your books, and anything else that you would like to add? Sure. Uh, my books are available uh Everywhere you can buy an ebook, pretty much. Um, they're also available in paperback on all the usual spots. Uh, working through audio, audio is time consuming and expensive. So, getting there. Um, my website is tomfowlerwrites.com. That's T O M F O W L E R W R I T E S.com. I'm sure you'll put a link in the notes, but for people who are listening. Uh, and that has all my, all you know, the books, uh, my blog, which I don't use very often. Uh, I don't think fiction writers need to have a blog, honestly, for the most part. Um, you know, podcast appearances like this, uh, it'll be on there. Uh, and just, you know, that's that's my essential hub for, for my writing online. Amazing. And thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Tom Fowler. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm joined by Alessa Thorne. And we are going to be talking all about how to pivot genre, a topic that I think is super needed, super interesting. And yeah, I'm really excited to dive into this because as you know, I am pivoting genre. So selfishly, if no other reason, I'm super excited to share this one with you. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.